According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, although we're going to spend most of our time in Daniel this morning, we'll fix our bearings with Matthew 24 and then resume where we left off one week ago. I've taught this so many times in uh, Kiev that uh, I forget I have not taught it as many times here. And uh, until you've gone through it two or three or four times yourself, it may not be as as obvious. Um, the differences between the little horn on the Roman beast and the little horn on the Greek beast and the structure of the book of Daniel and how the prophecies uh, are sequential and how they build on one another. So we'll walk our way through it this morning and make sure we're not, uh, we're not confusing things. All right, Matthew 24. We're told um, in verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And that's uh, an important parenthesis, and I'll show you where that parenthesis comes from here this morning. Then let those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And this is why when we divide the seven-year period of Daniel's 70 weeks, we divide it into two halves. The first three and a half years we call the tribulation, but the second three and a half years we call the great tribulation. And that's the intensified stage. That's the time that's unique, unlike anything else that's ever happened before. In the first half, uh, it's not... You can't make that claim. The first half and the things that happen in the beginning of birth pangs, uh, those have a lot of repetition and a lot of circumstances that are similar to things they've experienced in the past. But not so in the second three and a half years. It's unique in all human history. And we will, uh, we will show you that. All right. Well, that fixes our bearings. Uh, we have to deal with the abomination of desolation mentioned there in verse 15. And for that, we've got to turn back to Daniel. Before we do that, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. It's important that we're in fellowship. Distractions are set aside. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have this morning to assemble together. Father, we are uh, looking into some scriptures this morning that get a lot of people mixed up. Even, uh, even good men, Father, evangelical dispensational men sometimes uh, confuse things or get them muddled as they blend some, uh, some of the Daniel references. So, Father, uh, keep us from doing that. Keep our, uh, keep our things straight as we study to show ourselves approved. Father, we've, we're surrendering to you, dependent upon your guidance. We thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, in your outline, we are in point F. This is uh, main point eight, question number three. What will be the sign of the end of the age? And after this, subpoints A, B, C, D, E, F. F is the final one before we move on to point nine. Uh, subpoint F then, the sign of the end. And this is developed in Matthew 24, verses 15 through 28. It's also developed in Mark 13, verses 14 through 23. It is actually not developed in Luke Luke does not develop this. Luke does not answer this portion of the question. Uh, instead, Luke then goes and he answers one of the other questions. When will these things be? And in Luke's record, he actually narrates some of the events that pertain to the uh, 70 A.D. Roman destruction of Jerusalem. But here we're talking about the eschatological destruction, the, the uh, Antichrist, and the things that are still future from our standpoint. The abomination of desolation is the sign of the end. When you see the abomination of desolation, this is what they are to be looking for. This is what they are to see. All the other things uh, they might see, they might see the many cries, they might see the wars and rumors of wars, they might see the earthquakes and the famines. All those things are merely the beginnings of earth pangs. This is not yet the end. But after 
The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Immediately after then the end will come, we have the therefore when you see. And so it's very clear that this is the sign of the end. Point two, this abomination had a foreshadowing in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. But the ultimate fulfillment remains future. The ultimate fulfillment remains future. And it's very important. Jesus is after Epiphanes. He comes, uh, you know, a couple of centuries after Epiphanes, right? Uh, the Maccabean Wars were in the one 60s A.D. and prior to that, you know, around the 200 A.D. time frame down to the 170s time frame. B.C., right? B.C. And so 200 years later, here's Jesus in 33 A.D. saying that the abomination of desolation is still future. It has not yet come. And so the ultimate fulfillment cannot be epiphanies, not in any respect, because Jesus is after that. All right. So... Um, Although there is foreshadowing, and that's what I want to show you today is the foreshadowing so that we understand this. Daniel 8.13, Daniel 11.31, and 1 Maccabees 1, verses 54 through 58. I'm even going to read a five-verse stretch out of 1 Maccabees. Not because it's Bible, it's not Bible, but it is accurate history as it coincides with the, the historical records we have in Josephus and the historical records we have in other sources, all right, contemporary uh, authors of the day. So uh, let's go back to Daniel. And before we reach chapter eight, I actually want to kind of walk you through the progression here. So let's start with Daniel two and then Daniel seven, and then you'll be ready for Daniel eight. And hopefully then you'll understand what the sequence is. And I'll give you one hour of what takes uh, about a week to uh, teach the Bible students in Kiev. We have four sessions a day for four days in a week of Daniel. 16 teaching sessions to teach Daniel and then 16 teaching sessions the following week to teach Revelation. All right, Daniel chapter 2. And if you want more on this, we have a Daniel Revelation series on the website. There is a Daniel notebook. I don't know if we have any in stock or not, but there is a Daniel notebook. All right. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. None of his wise men can tell him of the dream or its interpretation. But Daniel uh, gets his friends into a prayer meeting and they uh, and God gives Daniel the dream and the interpretation. And uh, it's a it's a great statue. And it's introduced here in verse 31. You, O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. All right. This is huge. This is key. And if we do this correctly, then when we do it again in chapter 7... We're going to do ourselves some huge favors because the same message occurs in chapter 7, only instead of a, a statue with four parts, it's actually four beasts in chapter 7. All right. So let's flip over there next and take a look at that. The four beasts from chapter 7. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Don't flip. Stay in chapter 2. Um, understand uh, that... We don't have to be clever. We don't have to understand. Uh, all we have to do is just read in context, and it tells us the head of the gold is Babylon. Uh, you, O king, are the head of gold, we're told in verse 38. And then after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. After uh, Babylon departed, they were conquered by the Median Persians. And then after them is this third kingdom. Uh, another a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. It's going to have a geographical expanse greater than either the first one or the second one. And, and that's, that's Greece. And then Rome, the fourth kingdom, as strong as iron. 
As much as iron uh, crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks it in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. So Babylon is gold, Media Persia is silver, uh, Greece is, is uh, bronze, and Rome is iron. Now, Rome is not replaced by a fifth empire. Rome, though, has a crumbling, and that happens as the clay is injected. And you see that in verse 41 and 42 and 43. In fact, we got more description of the iron and the clay than we have of uh, the second and third kingdom put together. You notice that? The second and third kingdom get one verse there in verse 39. Rome gets one verse in verse 40. But the iron and the clay get three verses in 41, 42, and 43. And I think if we did better work on those verses, we would have uh, the best understanding of what happened to Rome when the barbarians invaded, what happened to Rome when the Germans uh, flooded in and tried to join the Latin culture, and what truly happened when the entire thing collapsed. It was not replaced by a fifth empire. It was, uh, it was succeeded in later generations. And you will notice this um, in verse 43. In that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. That we're going to look at a heritage of Rome long after the iron is no longer iron, long after the actual empire is no longer an empire. History books will tell you, and they've got different dates on it, 476 A.D. is one of the common dates for the fall of Rome, or 460, depending on who you're reading. But did, was Rome conquered by a fifth empire that then replaced it? No, it crumbled. And then the iron and clay elements, the Latin and Germanic heritage then, followed after in the centuries which followed and formed the basis for what we call Western civilization to this day. What we call the birth of medieval Europe was iron and clay, was Latin and Germanic. In any event, more work to be done on that. But when the statue comes, I mean when the stone comes, when Christ comes, Christ is the stone, when Christ hits these toes, notice he doesn't hit the legs of iron. Jesus does not destroy the Roman Empire that we think of as the historical Roman Empire. He hits the, the toes. He hits at the point where the feet have ten toes, right? Or in chapter 7 where the beast has ten horns, okay? He hits prophetic Rome. He hits future Rome and just brings the entire Gentile structure crumbling down. That becomes important as well. All right. Now you can go to chapter 7. Now you can go to chapter 7. If you want more on that, it's in the Daniel notebook. It's on the uh, website in the classes. I even uh, take greater pains to describe the Germanic clay and the Latin iron to, and to show the process by which Rome crumbled. Not, um, it was not conquered and there is no fifth part to the statue. There's no fifth empire. Likewise, here in chapter 7, there's not a fifth beast. There's only four beasts. And that fourth beast is going to develop ten horns at a future point of time. And that's when Christ is going to come to slay that final beast. There is not a fifth beast. And I'm saying this because there's a lot of books being sold right now, Joel Rosenberg and others, that is viewing the Muslim caliphate as the fifth beast, as being, you know, Antichrist is not Roman and Antichrist is Muslim. They tell you this. And that we shouldn't look for a revived Roman Empire. We should see that this kingdom is actually the Muslim Caliphate, And they say that, well, because we're, we're too Western, we've got to ignore the West, we've got to realize that Byzantium continued another thousand years after the fall of Rome. And that uh, it was actually when Constantinople was conquered by uh, the Turks then and went Muslim in 1453 A.D., that then was the fulfillment of, of Scripture. And it's, it's, it's all this convoluted stuff, but it looks it's using current events and the fact that Muslims have Israel surrounded today and they say, aha, that's got to be a Muslim Antichrist then that's going to have Jerusalem surrounded, blah, 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 blah. All right. And the fatal flaw in all that is that they are insisting that Islam is, well, first of all, it's, it's, a, it's a bad understanding of Islamic history as if Islam is one empire and has always been one empire ever since 600 A.D. It hasn't been. But to, even if it was one, 
instead of about eight different dynasties of Muslim rule. Even if it was one, it can't be validated by Scripture because there's only four parts to the statue and there's only four beasts in chapter 7. And Jesus Christ destroys the fourth, not a fifth or a twelfth or a fiftieth or depending on, you know, how many... Even the British ruled Jerusalem for a time, you know, after World War One. I. I mean... Um, how many people have had sovereignty over, what about the crusader states? What about, uh, you know, Germany ruled Jerusalem for about a year and a half when um, Frederick the Great was granted the title to the, to the, um, to the state there. So anyway, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of uh, bad stuff out there. And, and what breaks my heart is that it's getting more and more popular and more and more books are being sold and more and more websites are pursuing that view and uh, not only do I remain unconvinced, but I actually remain very convicted of the flaws in that approach. So, you've seen chapter 2. Let's look at chapter 7. Likewise, it's four beasts. It's not five. And uh, the lion with the wings like an eagle, that corresponds to the head of gold. And then the, uh, the second beast in verse 5 of chapter 7 is a bear raised up on one side with three ribs. This is Persia. And then the third beast, the leopard. Now, pay attention. This is interesting because the leopard has wings of a bird, but he also has four heads, a four-headed leopard. And that's uh, not only can we very well identify this with Greece, but it's going to pertain to what we're going to have coming up in chapter 8. See, after Alexander conquers, he's going to die very quickly. He's going to die very young. And it's not going to be one son or one successor that keeps Alexander's empire intact. It's actually going to be four generals. They're going to divide up his Greek empire into four competing Greek empires. And so it's still a Greek culture, even though it has four capitals. All right. Even though it has four capitals, it's still a Greek culture. And uh, the two that we're most concerned about in chapter eight are going to be uh, Ptolemy and Egypt and uh, Seleucid with uh, uh, the king of the north there in Seleucia. And we'll show you that. And then there's a fourth beast. All right. There's a fourth beast. And he can't be called a lion, a bear, or a leopard. He can't be called anything zoological. Uh, he's just called a beast. Dreadful and terrifying. Extremely strong. Large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. Look, noticing an iron related to the legs of iron from chapter 2. And it was different from all the beasts that went before it. And it had ten horns. Now, by the time this beast gets its ten, tor- ten horns, we related immediately to the ten toes from chapter 2. All right. Now, were the toes historical? No, the toes are still future from our perspective. And likewise with the horns. The horns were not historical. The horns are prophetical from our perspective today. The horns, we've not yet reached the horn stage of this beast. Just like we've not yet reached the toe stage of the statue. We're still today in 2011 AD. We're still in the feet of iron and clay. We're still dealing with the seed of men that, that the descendants of the Latin Germanic heritage are still in this world today. And that's what we have, mainly Western Europe and the Western Hemisphere, what we call the West. All right. Now, um, of these horns, pay attention to these horns now, keeping in mind that this is a Roman beast. These are Roman horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns are pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. And so this is, this is our picture of Antichrist. This is a picture of the coming man of lawlessness, the, uh, the beast, the, uh, the little Roman horn of Daniel chapter 7. Now he's described as a little horn. He's described as being boastful. He's described with eyes and a mouth. So there are going to be similarities with the horn we see in chapter 8. But the similarities are only important so we can identify shadows and types. Not so that we can say they're one and the same thing, because they're not. This is a Roman beast. The beast in chapter 8 is a Greek beast. This is a Roman little horn. The little horn that we have in chapter 8 is a Greek little horn. And if you can catch on to that, then uh, you'll understand that both little horns with big mouths 
but that's a Roman little horn with a big mouth. And this is a Greek little horn with a big mouth. And the Greek little horn with a big mouth does not grow and fill the earth. He's, he's done away with. The Roman little horn actually will grow to global prominence. And in the process, he actually throws down three out of the, uh, the ten horns of the Roman beast. <clears throat> now, um, you will notice, just like in chapter 2, I said, take a look at the proportions. One verse for the second and third beast. One verse for the fourth beast. Three verses for the iron and clay, right? Well, look at how many verses we have on this little horn. The ten horns are introduced in chapter 7, but the little horn is spotlighted in chapter 8. And then after an interlude in heaven, we come back, and in verses 11 and 12, we got that little horn again. And then there's another interlude in heaven in verses 13 and 14, where the Son of Man is presented before the Ancient of Days. And uh, notice now, it's that Son of Man that the Ancient of Days rules in favor for, not the little horn. The little horn is condemned. The Son of Man is exalted. Because the little horn exalted himself. The Son of Man humbled himself. We understand that. So notice, to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so we have language here that's identical to what we saw in chapter 2 with a with stone cut without hands that grows and fills the whole earth. It's an eternal kingdom. How many eternal kingdoms can you have? <laughs> Only the one. That's right. Only the last one. Only the one that puts an end to all the Gentile dominion and then grows forever. By definition, you can't have two eternal kingdoms like that. Not if they're coming in succession and replacing the ones that came before. So, this is identical to the, the, the uh, stone in chapter 2 that crushes the toes of the uh, statue. And here's Jesus and the Ancient of Days is ruling on his behalf. And the beast is going to be destroyed and taken away and given to the burning fire. All right. And so Daniel now is distressed and he wants an explanation. And he's going to get an explanation. And what does he want to know about? That fourth beast, verse 19. Then I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from the others. And he goes on to describe it here. The meaning of the ten horns and that one horn with a mouth uttering great boasts. See, that is the main part of this vision. And Daniel knows it. That's why he wants the most explanation of it. And I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. So we see Jesus talking about the Olivet Discourse and the attempt to exterminate the Jews and the, the war against the saints. Antichrist will not tolerate any worshipers of Jesus Christ. But you'll notice until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So the end of the statue does not come until the second advent of Jesus Christ. The end of the beasts does not come until the second advent of Jesus Christ. When Jesus warns the Jews, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through Daniel the prophet, don't be confused by the Antiochus anti or the, the typology, the foreshadowing of Antiochus. We have to look forward to the second advent of Jesus Christ, eschatologically, the tribulation, the second advent, and the millennial kingdom that follows. All right. You'll note uh, in verse 25, he will speak out against the Most High and will wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That's the three and a half years, the second half of the Great Tribulation. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. And this is the court that you see in these heavenly interludes, verses 9 and 10, verses 13 and 14. This is why at, when Jesus Christ lays hold of Antichrist at Armageddon, he throws him directly into the lake of fire. He doesn't go to hell first to come back to the lake of fire or to come back to the great white throne and then go to the lake of fire. Oh, no. He's already been judged. This court here in Daniel 7 has already condemned him. And he and the false prophet go immediately into the lake of fire. They're the first occupants of the lake of fire. Then the sovereignty, 
the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. So you got chapter two, four elements to the statue. You got chapter seven, four beasts. There's no room for a fifth beast. And then there is no point to trying to look for a world empire other than Rome. Because that's the fourth beast and that's what gets destroyed when it finally reaches its horn stage for the beast or when it finally reaches its toe stage for the statue. All right, now in chapter 8, we have a little horn. But I want you to understand in this uh, vision, this is now the vision of the ram and the she-goats. Okay? And... Um, Rather than try to impress you with what a genius I am to understand this, I'll just simply share with you the secret. Look down to verse 20, and uh, you tell me who's the ram. <laughs> All right? It's Media and Persia. All right? And who's the goat? Well, verse 21. That's Greece. Okay? So now I've given away all my secrets, and you won't be impressed with how brilliant I am to understand prophecy. But this is key. Boy, we've got to train these pastors to handle prophecy the way that's got to be handled, to handle eschatological passages, to handle uh, symbolic uh, apocalyptic literature and so forth. All right, so the ram budding westward, northward, southward. And then here comes the goat that kills him. Look at the goat in verse 5. I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. The speed, when Alexander conquered, he conquered so powerfully, he, would, he wouldn't rest on his victories. He immediately went on to the next victory. And he would typically reach his next enemy before they even received word of the last enemy's defeat. Right? Because they didn't have email. They didn't have satellite communication. They didn't know, you know who won that previous battle. Was Alexander finally stopped? And they're waiting to get report back. Well, News isn't going to travel any faster than the fastest horse. So Alexander determined he was going to be the fastest horse. And he, was going to, and he would get to his next enemy while they were still waiting word on what happened to the last enemy. And so here's this goat. and he's running. It's like cartoons, you know, like Bugs Bunny or Roadrunner, you know, running along so fast and the feet aren't even touching the ground, right? Just spinning around in the... Anyway, I apologize. This is it not dignified for your pastor to use a roadrunner cartoon illustration but that's what we see here now he had a conspicuous horn between his eyes but notice as soon as he dies i mean as soon as he conquers in verse 8 the male goat magnified himself exceedingly but as soon as he was mighty a large horn the large horn was broken and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven so again we have compatibility from chapter to chapter to chapter we've got progression but we have compatibility. How many, leopards, how many heads did that leopard have in chapter 7? Four heads. How many horns does this horn break into when the horn of the, of the Greek goat is broken? Four horns. Okay? We should be real clear on all this. should be real obvious. Now, keeping in mind these are four Greek horns. And on one of those Greek horns then, out of one of those four, is going to come up an additional horn. One of them, out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the beautiful land. And um, it's going to magnify itself. It's going to boast. It's going to have some victories. And how long is this horror going to take place? Now, in verse 13, you have language that's somewhat similar to the language the Lord used, but not, not exactly, not identical. How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror. While the transgression causes horror. Now that's similar to abomination of desolation, but not exact. So as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. And he said to me for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Daniel wants understanding. He's given understanding. Told about these kingdoms. Told who they are. Um... And so forth. Talking about 
in the latter period of their rule, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. Verse 23. A king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. Those are his qualifications for ruling. His audacity and the way in which he manipulates emotions. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree. And through his shrewdness, look at verse 25, through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. All right. But this little horn is not the little horn from chapter 7. The, chapter, the little horn from chapter 7 was on a Roman beast. The little horn in chapter 8 is on a Greek beast. Okay? And so here's the difference. They're both little horns. They both have a lot of similarities. But the one is a foreshadowing of the other. The little horn, the little Greek horn, is a picture, a foreshadowing. You realize Christ, there were many types of Christ that preceded the coming of Christ. Likewise, there were many types of Antichrist that precede the coming of Antichrist. And Antiochus is one of the primary ones, probably the greatest one. I'd say between him and Judas Iscariot, I don't know who's the greater type of Antichrist. All right? Probably this guy. So the abomination had a foreshadowing in the days of Antiochus. But the ultimate fulfillment remains future. Let's go to chapter 11. Now, in chapter 11, we have a um, the, the, the zoom lens is zoomed in even more. Okay. In chapter 7, the, the camera was focused on four beasts. And then in chapter 8, it zoomed in a little bit to focus on, on uh, the end of Media, Persia, and the, and the arrival of Greece, right? So we had beasts 1, 2, 3, and 4. In chapter 7, in chapter 8, we zoomed in only to look at beasts 2 and 3. Media, Persia, the ram, and Greece, the goat, right? Now in chapter 11, we zoom in even closer. Now we're just looking at two out of those four horns that arose on the Greek beast. And they're called the king of the north, the king of the south. They're both Greek kings. They're both Greek cultures. It's still dealing with the Greek era of Gentile dominance over the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And as you go through this, I highly recommend that you get the Daniel notebook because here you're going to actually have the scorecard that tells you we've got about six different kings of the south and six or seven different kings of the north as you go through this progression in chapter 11. A, span, a panorama span, span of history here. In this chapter, but I want you to see something uh, all through here. You've got just scan down the page with me. You'll notice uh, you have an introduction here in verses one through four about uh, the death of Alexander and how in verse four uh, his kingdom is parceled out, not to his descendants, given to the to these uh, four points of the compass. And then we start in verse 5, we start with the king of the south, king of the north, king of the north, king of the south, king of the south, king of the north. All right? So, you see it there in verse 5, king of the south. Verse 6, king of the south, king of the north. Verse 7, king of the north. Um, verse 8, king of the north. King of the south in verse 9. King of the south in verse 11. And you work your way through this. The whole chapter is like this. Until... Um, all the way down through verse 35. From 5 to 35, you've got a constant back and forth between king of the north, king of the south, king of the south, king of the north. All of a sudden then, in verse 36, you have, then the king will do as he pleases. And that smacks you in the face like, a, like getting off a plane in Panama. Okay? I'm, I'm telling you, 
get off a plane in Panama and the 600% humidity and the 120 degrees just goes whap. And you're just in a daze. All right? And you're going through, you got from verse 5 to verse 35 going, King of the South, King of the North, King of the North, King of the South. And then, boom, the king will do as he pleases. Well, now, who's this? Is this North or South? Who is this? And you've got a, uh, you've got a, uh, a paragraph here. This is what I call prophetic shift. It's my term. Prophetic shift. Verses 36 through 39 are dealing with somebody else that's not a feature of 5 through 35, but is intimately connected. And I'll show you that connection here in just a moment. But he is neither the king of the north nor the king of the south. And we can see that because his paragraph is unique to him in 36 through 39. And then it says in verse 40, at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots. Notice this. So this king who will do as he pleases in 36 to 39, this is Antichrist. This is eschatological Antichrist of the Great Tribulation. And he will, in the tribulation, come into conflict with both the king of the north and the king of the south. They're going to try to smash him between the two of them. And uh, they won't succeed. Um... They'll come against him with chariots and horsemen and many ships. He will enter count, uh, countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land. He will actually be, this will be his entrance into, Doug, this will be his entrance into uh, Jerusalem. This will be his entrance into Israel. You understand? Uh, but these lands, he will be uh, rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Those are going to be territories that Antichrist will not be able to invade and occupy during this period of the tribulational warfare. It's uh, remarkable, too, because this is uh, one of the places of refuge that the Jewish people are going to find to hide during the time of Antichrist destruction. Uh, And it goes on, some more of his warfare, um, down through verse 45. Okay, so now back up a little bit. We've got to handle more of this king of the north, king of the south, king of the north, king of the south. Because Antiochus is in this chapter as well. He's in... Uh, verse 31. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice, and they will set up the abomination of desolation. All right. Very similar to how we have it in Matthew. Matthew, by the way, is an identical verbatim Septuagint quote out of Daniel 9.27. Just uh, in case you want to know. And that's the one with the firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to grain offering and uh, the description of what Antichrist is going to do in the middle of week 70. So um, Daniel 11:31. let me just tell you, in the context of this, uh, verses 29 through, well, let's see, where does Antiochus begin here? Verse 20, starting in verse 20, taking you down through verse 35, you've got Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He is the king of the north in this context, and he is a foreshadowing of the coming Antichrist. And you see the foreshadowing in 20 through 35. You see the abomination of desolation in verse 31, but you also see very clearly that he is not the same as the king in verses 36 through 39. That you have a prophetic shift in verse 36. And you're going from the type to the fulfillment. You're going from the foreshadowing to the reality. Does that make sense? In verse 36, when it says the king will do as he pleases. At that point, we have just left history and launched forward into eschatology for you and for me. It It was all prophecy the time Daniel uttered it, but... For us today in the church age, down through verse 35 has already happened. It happened in the, in the Maccabean era. But verses 36 and following is still future. And that prophetic shift, our clue for that prophetic shift, our, our hermeneutical um, key is the change of language in verse 36 where we have the king will do as he pleases. And you have introduced here a king 
alien to this context and yet very much a part of this context because as soon as he's developed, he will then, in prophecy, have more conflict against the king of the north, king of the south, starting there in verse 40. All right, so those keys are, uh, are vital, absolutely vital to understand. So let's not confuse our foreshadowing with our reality. The foreshadowing is a Greek horn. The reality is a Roman horn. The foreshadowing is Antiochus Epiphanes. The reality is Antichrist. And uh, here in chapter 11, we've got a very clear uh, distinction to be drawn there. The rest of this is, is quite remarkable. And one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible is right here in this. Where it says the ships of Kittim will come against him in verse 30. Therefore, he will be disheartened. And uh, the story of this, as he's on the borders of Egypt getting ready to invade Egypt, he's ready to have, and he militarily could have conquered Egypt. He was very proud, and the king of the north would have had victory over the king of the south. The only problem is, in the meantime, Egypt has now come under Roman protection. That's what the ships of Kittim were about. And under Roman protection, uh, there is a consul who meets him at the border and says, turn around. (laughs) <laughs> and Antiochus has this massive army. The consul is simply there representing Rome, and he's got 12 lictors. He's got 12 ceremonial bodyguards. Um, doesn't have a great army. He's just a consul standing there representing Rome with 12 lictors, with 12 ceremonial guards. And uh, it's, it's one of the most amazing stories of all antiquity. The Romans tell it over and over again. Um, other historians tell it. It's hinted at here. Josephus tells it uh, how uh, the ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened. And one Roman consul turned an entire Rome back, an entire army back. And when he turns to the north, he's just absolutely furious. And he, he takes it out on the Jews on his way back to uh, Seleucia. Okay. In any event, I know I've told you the story before. Do you remember it? I know I've told it to you before. Because he demands that he turns around and and so he asks, he says, can I have time to consider? And the consul says, uh, well, the consul takes a sword and he draws a circle in the sand around where the man was standing. And he says, take all the time you want, but I will have your answer before you step out of that circle. And that's when, without a word, he just turned around, walked out of the circle, headed north and his armies went with him and on it went. Okay, so if you want to read more on that, just let me know. I'll try to find some references for you. But this is the beginning of Rome's influence on Egypt that will eventually, you know, take you all the way down to Cleopatra, take you all the way down to Julius Caesar and Marcus Anthony and all of the things that that show up in Shakespeare and the movies and things like that. Let me read Maccabees for you and then we'll look at the fulfillment here in Antichrist. You'll notice though on the slide... The shadow of, epif- of uh, foreshadowing of Antiochus Epiphanes is Daniel 11:31, but the ultimate fulfillment with Antichrist is Daniel 11:36 through 39. Daniel 11:36 through 39 spotlights that segment, um, as well as chapter 12, which we'll see here in a moment. Let me pull up First Maccabees 1:54. Again, this is not Bible. But it is accurate history. Confirmed via Josephus and other sources. Now, the 15th day of the month, Kazlau, sometimes called Kislev, in the 145th year, they set up the abomination of desolation upon the altar and builded idol altars throughout the cities of Judah on every side and burnt incense at the doors of their houses and in the streets. And when they had uh, rent in pieces the books of the law which they had found, they burned them with fire. And wheresoever was found any of the books of the testament, or if any consented to the law, the king's commandment was that they should be put that they should put him to death. So if a Jewish person wanted to capitulate and start worshiping Zeus, uh, start uh, following the, the the Greek idolatry, that's fine. That would save their lives. But if they insisted on following the law, uh, keeping their Torah. They would be put to death. Thus they did by their authority unto the Israelites every month to as many as were found in the cities. 
Now the five and twentieth day of the month, they did sacrifice upon the idol altar, which was the altar of God, at which time, according to the commandment, they put to death certain women that had caused their children to be circumcised. And they hanged the infants about their necks and rifled their houses and slew them that they had circumcised them just for circumcising their boys, just for trying to raise up the next generation under Mosaic law. Howbeit, many uh, in Israel were fully resolved and confirmed in themselves not to eat any unclean thing. Wherefore, they chose rather to die that they might not be defiled with meats and that they might not profane the holy covenant. So and so then they died and there was very great wrath upon Israel. And in those days arose Mattathias, the son of John, the son of Simon, a priest of the sons of Joarib from Jerusalem and dwelt in Modin. And he had five sons, Johanan called Caddis, Simon called Thassi, Judas, who was called Maccabeus, Eleazar called Avaron, and Jonathan, whose surname was Aphus. And so this priest and his five sons are going to rise and they're going to launch the revolution that will overthrow the, uh, the Seleucid control over Jerusalem. And then ultimately it's Judas Maccabeus, uh, the hammer, who... Uh, is the one that will be the, the the entire era will be named after him. He will be crowned and uh, as a priest king. He's not from Judah, all right, but he accepts the the rule. And this uh, this Maccabean era is uh, will exist for a short while until such time as Rome comes and puts it to an end. All right, so there's the the history on that and all of the things that. Uh, Antiochus was doing. All right, so the foreshadowing is the days of Antiochus, but Jesus isn't confused when he says that the abomination of desolation hasn't happened yet. Uh, he knows that what uh, what uh, Antiochus did was just a foreshadowing. So the ultimate fulfillment remains yet future. The ultimate fulfillment remains with Antichrist. And we already saw Daniel 11, 36 through 39. If you turn over to Daniel 12, you'll notice verses 10 through 13. It's still future. Go your way, Daniel. These words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. Now pay attention to that because this is actually where our uh, expression in Matthew comes from where get that little parentheses in there, let the reader understand. Okay? From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. An extra 45 beyond that. But as for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. There's another glimmer here earlier in the chapter as well. Look at verse 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. So this is unique in human history. Just like we see the Great Tribulation, unique in human history. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be saved or will be rescued. And um, you see in verse 3, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So there's going to be a body of ministers, faithful believers with insight, operating during this unparalleled time of uh, future tribulation. Second Thessalonians 2 gives us Paul's development on this beast. Second Thessalonians 2. The um, verses three and four. Let no one in any way deceive you for the day of the Lord will not come unless the departure comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship 
so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. So this is Antichrist yet future and the abomination is him is taking his seat in the temple, proclaiming himself as God. And you know what restrains him now. And then he who restrains him now. It's a what and a he in verse 6 and in verse 7. So we've done studies on that as well related to the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the church age and its restraining function throughout the world. Point three then. Let the reader understand. Let the reader understand. Echoes the anticipation of insight. For those who read and heed the full eschatological warnings from Daniel, Jesus, Paul, and John. Let the reader understand. That's Matthew 24, 15. Mark 13, 14. Let the reader understand. Echoes the anticipation of insight. We saw it in Daniel 12, verse 3 and verse 10. For those who read and heed, Revelation 1.3. The Apostle John, when he's giving the conclusion to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, all the prophets, okay? You understand the major prophets and the minor prophets are complete in and of themselves only with the Apostle John in the book of Revelation to tie it together. Only with the Apostle John in the book of Revelation to tie it together. And I must also say in between there, the upper room, disc, or the uh, Olivet Discourse of Jesus Christ. You've got to take Matthew 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse. And you've got to take Revelation if you're going to have the full understanding of Isaiah through Malachi. Okay? And that's where I think we do the best as dispensationalists and rightly dividing the word of truth. Revelation 1.3 says, Blessed are those who read <clears throat> and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. Tribulational martyrs, the 144,000 believers in the tribulation. You better believe Revelation is going to be important to them. Matthew 24 and 25 is going to be important to them. Isaiah through Malachi is going to be important to them. And they will have the opportunity. They will have the greatest insight. Better than we do today. I'll tell you that. Because we're separated by the limitations of looking forward at a greater distance. They will be looking right at it. Not forward, but right at it. And seeing it unfolded before their eyes. For those who read and heed the full eschatological warnings from Daniel, Jesus, Paul, and John. And that's why that chain is critical. If all we had was Daniel, then we might, we might legitimately debate Antiochus' role as being the ultimate fulfillment. But because we have Jesus and Paul, we can't debate that because they spoke of it as still being future and they came after Antiochus. And likewise, if all we had was Daniel, Jesus, and Paul, there might be a legitimate discussion related to the 70 AD destruction of Jerusalem. But we've got John in Revelation written in 96 A.D. after the destruction of Jerusalem, still looking forward to the coming tribulation. OK, so once again, the, the preterist view is untenable, just as the Antiochus view is untenable. We're still looking forward. It still is yet future. We are pre-tribulational, premillennial, dispensational Bible students. The tribulation of Israel is the uniquely tribulational event in all human history. The tribulation of Israel is the uniquely tribulational event. Now, we have tribulation. In the world, you will have tribulation. We're told that. But that's with a little t. The big tribulation, capital T, the one and only, the unique time in all human history. There is nothing like it before or since. It's described that way in Jeremiah 30 and verse 7. It's described that way in Daniel 12, 1. It's described that way in Matthew 24, our passage we're looking at today. 
verses 21 and 22, as well as the parallel text in Mark 13, where it is stated in verse 19. And Jesus is in total agreement with Jeremiah and Daniel on this. But I want you to see Jeremiah 30. Something described this uniquely can only be one thing. And there can't be two things that have the identical description. Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. It is unique. It is the time of Jacob's distress. But he will be saved from it. And of course, that, there's a context there that precedes it. Five through seven, there's the language of a woman in childbirth. There's the uh, language of tribulation here. It's unique. Now, the Jewish people have endured some amazing things over the years. But they haven't seen anything yet. Even the worst Holocaust they've ever envisioned, they've ever experienced. Doesn't, it's going to pale. It won't even be remembered anymore compared to this. This is unique. The, the tribulation of Israel will make everything else fade away. We, we read Daniel 12.1 already. There's no day like it. Matthew 24 says there's no day like it. Verse 21 says, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. No, nothing like it ahead of it. Nothing like it afterwards. Nothing like it. This is the unique day of global tribulation in all human history. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. So severe was this that it had the potential to exterminate life, all human life. You know, that's why I'm not worried about nuclear destruction of the earth. There's going to be a nuclear destruction of the earth, but God himself will kindle it when he's ready to build the new earth, the new heavens and the new earth. But man and war and disease and all these other things, we couldn't do it. And the closest we ever get, technologically with, with destructive capacity, the closest we ever get is right here and Jesus Christ puts an end to it. Does not permit it to occur. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Those days will be cut short. Likewise, Mark 13 says it's unique in all human history. And so what is the response to the warning? Doctrinally oriented believers will obey the Scriptures by fleeing and hiding. By fleeing and hiding. And that's what verses uh, 23 through 28 are all about. Fleeing and hiding. When you see the abomination, flee. Hide. The flight must be immediate and rapid. You don't have time to go get your jacket. You don't have time to... Are you in the front yard? Don't go in the house. Run. Are you up on the roof? Don't go down into the house to get your stuff. I imagine just jump off the roof and run. And I hope you're not pregnant. Pregnant women don't run very fast. I've seen it. Matthew 24, verses 16 through 20. The flight must be immediate and rapid. Mark 13, 14 through 18. The flight must be immediate and rapid. See, Jerusalem is going to be given over. If you stay there, you're doomed. The city will be crushed. The city is going to be crushed. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. <laughs> stay in the city. Ignore the warning. You are vulture food. Okay? Temptations to come out of hiding must be rejected. If someone says, oh, here's the Christ, ignore it. They're trying to lure you out of your hiding place. Ignore it. When Christ comes, it's, there won't be any doubt. And you won't need a buddy to say, oh, he's over here. Let's go look into it. No. It'll be from the, like the lightning, the flashing from the east to the west. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. And we'll see next. In verses 29 and following, we'll come back next week to study. There is going to be a sign of the coming of the Son of Man. That's their final question Jesus is going to answer. Answering the sign of the end of the age, now he's going to answer the sign of his coming. And so, all of these rumors, if they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. 
It is a lie. It is a trap. And you won't need them to tell you that Christ has come. Because he's going to come in a big way with an awesome sign, with power and great glory. And he's going to be whooping on the Antichrist and the forces of darkness. And he will be delivering you. That is, those that are enduring this. And, uh, and so forth. All right. We will come back with main point nine next week. Question number one. The very first question that they had, when will these things happen? Uh, it's omitted in Matthew and Mark, but it is covered in Luke, so we'll discuss that. Luke 21, verses 20 through 24. And then we'll be ready for question two. What will be the sign of your coming? And it is all the sun, moon, and stars going dark and one single star appearing in the sky, growing and growing and growing closer and closer and closer. And what a day that's going to be. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.